Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. On today's show, Erica Minahan, founder and managing partner of A Thousand Angels, a private venture investment network, and Coco Brown, founder and CEO of the Athena Alliance, talk about the fundamentals of venture investing. Erica provides a primer on venture investing, what it is, the different categories of investing, how to get started, how to develop a portfolio approach to investing, and what makes companies investable. If you've thought about getting into this asset class, this is a great podcast on what you need to know. Or if you're like me and barreled into a few friend and family investments without the benefits of Erica's wisdom, listen as well, so you can understand how to think about your potential future investments and your role as an angel investor. Today, we're playing part one of the two-part series. Part two will air in a few weeks. Enjoy this great conversation with Erica and Coco. We'll get started with what we can cover today. Uh, some basics on, you know, what is venture investing and what are the different categories within it? Uh, what are some of the risks and rewards of getting involved as an investor in this space? Um, a little bit about how we use a portfolio approach to be successful. And most importantly, what makes a deal investable? So, you know, how do we sort of determine what companies, you know, are worth investing in as outsiders versus just what companies can be really great businesses for their founders, but might not make such sense to add to your portfolio. So, you know, a big part of the reason why um, this whole category has gotten pretty interesting is that, you know, we're seeing so much in the news around startup finance. And, you know, as somebody who spent a long career in banking and, you know, has that has been in this space for the last 13 years, I'd say that, you know, over the last five years or so, um, there's just a lot more uh, information going around and stories in the media about startup valuations and, you know, what SoftBank is doing and what WeWork is doing and, you know, why is this company worth a billion, et cetera. So I think that for folks to have a better understanding of kind of the details at the early stage um, can be really helpful um, and of a lot of interest. So when we talk about venture investing, you know, our first question is, of course, you know, what is an angel investor, right? So, um, you know, the second question is, why do people even become angel investors, right? So these are some of the, the big questions that, that folks have. And so the main thing to realize, the main differentiator, is that an angel investor is um, a person who makes a direct investment of personal funds into a venture. And it's typically an early stage venture, as opposed to a venture capitalist um, who's investing what we call OPM or other people's money. So really, you know, what differentiates you isn't necessarily, you know, what a lot of people think that, oh, well, you know, angel investors are just trying to be nicer or any of that stuff, but it's really just about, um, you know, who sort of has uh, actual, you know, sort of control over the money um, at the early stage. Is it on behalf of LPs or is it um, as an individual? And there are certain differences from the founder perspective as to um, the sort of alignment of interest between those two types of investors and where they come in. So this chart here kind of shows you a little bit about the different types of early stage investors. 
Um, and you know, if we look at the axes here, you're going to see that there is a spectrum as far as dollars raised, as well as the you know, sort of quality of the deal terms. Um, and you'll see as the company grows, um, different types of investors coming in. So, you know, on the smaller end of capital raise, you know, you're going to start off with your friends and family. You're going to start off, you know, with investment clubs and sort of smaller angels moving on to seed funds and then to VC firms as the dollar amounts get larger. And you'll see that as the dollar amounts get larger, the, um, types of securities that are used and the terms of the deals uh, for from the investor perspective um, become a little bit more attractive and a little bit more stringent. So um, we'll see the types of companies change as you kind of move up that spectrum. Um, as far as, you know, the risks and rewards of venture investing, um, you know, there are some great reasons to start venture investing, right? So Let's first address some of the risks. And I would say that, you know, the number one risk that everybody um, who gets involved at the early stage needs to be aware of is that there is actually a very high risk of total loss. And we'll sort of dig into the numbers a little bit deeper as to, you know, what you can expect as an investor. Um, and of course, you know, that risk is there. I think people are aware of it. Um, it can be mitigated through various strategies that we'll talk about. But really more importantly, I'd say that the one thing, you know, that people maybe are a little bit uh, more uncertain about is just the complete lack of liquidity, right? So even in the best case scenario, um, you tend to end up with sort of a five to 10 year horizon um, before you actually achieve liquidity, before the company has an exit. Um, so those are some risks to really take very seriously and to realize that, you know, even though this asset class can provide uh, incredible returns um, and tremendous alpha, there is a huge liquidity premium or really illiquidity premium to the investor, a very long and uncertain holding period and an absolute chance um, that you can lose all of your money. So given all of these risks, you know, why do people bar bar bother doing this, right? So really, you know, I would say that we always wanna focus on the main objective, right, of getting into this asset class has to be really for above market returns, right? You know, a lot of times you'll hear people, particularly when you're dealing with female investors, um, you know, sort of be like, well, you know, I want to help somebody, I want to help, I want to, you know, invest in women, you know, all those things are really wonderful. But in order to be, you know, successful and sustainable in this asset class, um, developing a portfolio that produces above market returns really has to be paramount, right? And the reason for that is because due to the high risk of total loss, due to the complete lack of liquidity, you know, due to the long investment horizons, um, as an early stage investor, if you're not building a portfolio to target, you know, quite high market returns, um, eventually we would all sort of run out of money to invest and it would cripple the startup ecosystem, right? So, you know, we as investors have to be just as diligent with how we allocate capital as the founders have to be with how they spend it. So once you've kind of, you know, taken that as your, as, as a primary concern, 
I think that, of course, the next three are sort of the fun um, reasons that people get involved with angel investing. And so the first is, of course, meet cool people, right? And, you know, I have to say as an investor, I mean, it's pretty amazing, um, you know, through my work in this arena, you know, I now know lots of people that have started multi-billion dollar companies, right? And, you know, people who I've had a relationship with since, you know, they were unknown of, right? That nobody had ever heard their name, um, that their company was not around. So, you know, you certainly do have a tremendous opportunity to um, build amazing relationships, to, you know, see a company become something out of nothing, um, to learn a lot about new technology and to be on the cutting edge. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of fun in that, right? There's a lot of excitement. So there are some really great reasons for why we start um, that help to overcome some of the risks. And I can see we have a question from Lilia that says, how does a thousand angels get higher preference than professional seed funds or other large angel groups? Um, so it's really not so much about that we, you know, I guess the word isn't necessarily that you're getting higher preference. Um, it, you know, a lot of it has to do with, um, uh, let's see, um, kind of the way that, you know, a, a, an angel group or a fund might be structured. Um, so you'll see that a, a vast majority of angel groups across the country are set up, you know, a little bit more as um, kind of clubs, um, you know, they're, they're looking to do, you know, investment in companies that are local to them. So, you know, if it's a group in Connecticut or Westchester, you know, they want to invest in companies, you know, companies that are growing kind of around them or, you know, in Texas, same thing. Whereas with a thousand angels, we are pretty much 100% acting as a global network to co-invest in venture-led deals that have already had uh, terms negotiated by a venture fund um, and have already had a first close and are looking to fill out a smaller um, amount of their round. I think another part of the reason that we're able to operate where we operate is that we just have um, a lot more of a streamlined uh, process for founders. So, you know, there is actually a cost to the social element of a lot of angel networks, which is that, you know, founders are pretty aware that um, a lot of time they end up being used kind of as like entertainment um, for the group. Um, obviously, there's a potential for investment, but it becomes, you know, very time consuming, um, and, you know, sort of the value per dollar is less. So I think that's why we, we've been able to have an advantage. Um, we also operate a lot more like a venture fund. So even though um, checks are coming directly from individuals, uh, the founders deal, you know, with us directly um, and the diligence process is a lot more streamlined. Um, and we're able to bring, uh, I think, relationships uh, more closely to what a fund would bring. So if we look at the risk profile of various asset classes, you know, you see this chart takes us all the way from, you know, the lowest risk, right, treasuries, which is supposedly, you know, zero risk technically, um, all the way to where we're operating um, at seed stage equity, um, you know, for sort of non-derivative based assets. This is pretty as, as, as far as as far out as you can get on the risk curve. 
Um, so to a lot of people that would seem somewhat scary, you know, but if you understand portfolio theory, you can see that there can be um, a lot of uh, advantages to adding a small amount of very high risk, high return uh, potential assets to a portfolio. So it has to sort of be in combination with a lot of other asset classes. But at the end of the day, you know, this is an asset class like any other. Um, it's just not quite as regulated as, you know, some of the things that are lower on the risk spectrum. So as you get out there, you know, you have to use, um, you have to be a little bit more careful about how you participate in it and get a little bit more, I would say, professional guidance um, or, you know, dig in deeper with a little bit more experience in order to be able to perform well. But in theory, um, as far as risk-adjusted returns go, you know, we've seen over, you know, the last few decades that this asset class can perform incredibly well. And particularly, you know, as companies, you know, not only wait longer to go public, so you know it's much longer before you even have a chance to purchase equity in some of these most successful startups. Um, the markets also sort of started to value things differently, um, not only between just the way companies are valued. You know, in the olden days, it was like okay, multiple on EBITDA. You know, all that stuff is out the window. But also, as there's more M and A activity. Uh, that allows those private company investors to basically capture uh, a good deal of returns that public market companies want to own for innovation and growth. So it's almost like, you know, a, a part of the economy that's kind of, you know, shifted off to the side to, um, to, you know, launch businesses, grow them and capture the return on investors completely outside of the public markets. Uh, so that's why I think it's also been um, very financially successful for many of the investors. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of risk, right? So what we want to talk about today is, you know, what are some of the ways that you can reduce risk um, if you do want to start playing in this asset class? So number one, you know, we're going to talk about diversification and its extreme importance for people who are coming into this sector. Um, the benefits of co-investing, um, of course, you know, performing due diligence. Um, so, you know, really that's why we make sure we've gone through the financial models, that we get to know the founders very well, that we've really researched the markets um, and the opportunity uh, for each of the companies that we invest in. Um, and then of course, you know, post-investment, um, investors are able to reduce some of the risk by, you know, staying engaged with the companies that they've invested in, right? So sort of continuing to be a resource and support to them as they grow, helping them through challenges. And that's another thing that, you know, some folks really like about early stage investing is that, you know, you're obviously women with a lot of amazing experience in networks. And, you know, if a founder needs those resources or the, that help, like you can actually be there and have an impact uh, on the success of the company. And then just good old, you know, good record keeping, right? So a lot of people will make an investment and kind of, you know, forget about it, um, sort of really staying on top of, okay, you know, what's in my portfolio? What do I own? Were there warrants in there? You know, are are they doing a follow-on round? Do I need to exercise pro rata rights? Just sort of keeping on top of all that stuff um, helps to mitigate risk. Um, and that's another thing that we really help with at A Thousand Angels is, you know, helping uh, our companies understand that we're doing some portfolio management for them as a group so they don't need to, you know, think about it 
uh, so much individually. Um, so as far as diversification, I mean, I'm sure that you guys mostly understand this. This is, you know, also very applicable to the stock market, um, which is that a single concentrated investment is a big gamble. Um, but we have slightly different uh, numbers that we have to deal with that I think, um, you know, make this an even more serious consideration for getting into this asset class. So this is a little bit of an older study, um, but I think probably the most recent study that's been done on, you know, the angel investment asset class period. But my guess would be that the numbers are still, you know, fairly the same. And that's that, you know, for this asset class, you're going to see somewhere between 30 and 40% of companies that successfully raise money end up in a total loss, um, somewhere between around 30 to 40% um, end up breaking even. And it's only sort of around 20 to 30% of the companies that actually provide a positive return. So for this reason, diversification becomes really key because there's basically an 80% chance that you know, any individual company that you invest in is either gonna go to zero or you know, if you're lucky, return your capital. Um, and you know, it's only sort of that 20-ish percent that are the ones that are gonna provide the 10, 20, 30X returns. So making sure that we end up with one of those, um, one or two or more of those in the portfolio is really critical uh, to success and longevity of investing, um, but also to actually achieving those above market returns. Um, so, you know, we want to, uh, rather than putting a large amount of capital into a single company to spread smaller amount of capitals, uh, uh, smaller amounts um, of investment uh, among a more diverse group of companies. So, you know, I see in this space, a lot of people get really excited. Oh, I heard this great idea. I think it's next big winner. They treat it with like a lottery ticket approach. Um, it's just not a good thing to do. So, you know, rather than, you know, putting a hundred grand into a single company, um, you know, the better rule of thumb is, you know, do $25,000 investments over four companies and kind of, you know, hedge your bets. Um, and I know this seems like a really simple, obvious thing, but with startups, people end up sometimes getting a little too excited, a little too personally connected to the company, um, you know, a, a little too uh, wanting to put their eggs in one basket because they really love the founder or they really love the concept, um, but we still have to, you know, treat it a little bit more like an asset class and maintain uh, a commitment to diversification. Um, so, you know, this chart is, you know, used for pretty much every asset class that, you know, as you increase the number of investments, um, you're able to actually minimize the risk of the overall portfolio. And if we look at the numbers here, you know, we're using examples of three different portfolios that are comprised of companies that either end up in a total loss, a break even, uh, a double, right? So you got 2x your investment, uh, a great exit, which would be 10x or a home run, which would be 20x or more. And, you know, for this asset class, our target um, sort of portfolio, overall portfolio return really needs to be around 25% um, in order to be competitive with the market on a risk adjusted basis. And if you look at the example here, we can see that, you know, for investor A, you know, if they had 40% of their portfolio, um, 
in, you know, companies that ended up in a total loss, 40% in break even. One, they got a double and, oh, look, one, they actually got a 10X, right? So if you were kind of at a cocktail party, you know, this person who got a 10X would be sitting there, you know, probably just bragging about what an amazing investor they are because look, I, you know, I had one company that was a 2X and I had one company that was a 10X, but we can see that that doesn't even get your overall portfolio to, um, you know, that gets you to kind of like a almost what you would expect from the stock market on a good year, right? So, you know, in theory, it's really kind of not getting you there. Um, so, you know, when we are looking at investments, you know, a lot of folks think like, oh, well, um, the company says that, you know, they can double my money or they're going to, you know, this will be worth 5x, you know, in a few years. But because of the effect of compounding and just the risk of the asset class, you know, we really need to be looking for 10x sort of minimum expected returns all the way up to sort of 20 or 30x. So the rate of return that you really need to demand um, from a startup when you invest in order for your portfolio to perform, you know, at an acceptable level is quite high. So even in, you know, portfolio B, this person had two 10X investments in the portfolio, right? Or had 20% of their portfolio um, that moved into the 10X and they still only got to sort of a 20% IRR, right? And this is sort of assuming a five-year time horizon, which is not even as long as probably, like you'd be very lucky to be on five years. And so, you know, if you look at portfolio C, this person had 40% in total loss, 30% and break even, one double, one 10x, and one home run. And now they're kind of clearing that hurdle to get to, you know, a 29% IRR. So these companies actually need to perform spectacularly well on exit um, for you to be able to reach the uh, IRR hurdle that, you know, makes it an appropriate addition to your portfolio to do what it needs to do. So we need to be very cognizant of the fact that, you know, the expectation when you go in, you know, particularly for something that's even at an A stage has to be at least that the company has an expectation that the value of whatever security you're purchasing should be worth, you know, 10x within the next five years and sometimes even should be more 20 or 30. Um, so the cost of capital is high and as investors, we need to really think about that. Erica, um, so I just want to break and see if there are any questions so far. Erica, I have a, a question for you. Can you hear me? This is Coco. I can. Hey, Coco. Hi. Hear you and see you. <laughs> um, hello. Um, so interestingly, so if, if you're joining an angel investment uh, group that has a minimum of, say, 25K investments or another one that has a $10,000 minimum on investments, and then you also factor in um, sort of follow-on rounds and, and kind of, you know, participating in follow-on rounds to try to help the company along. Is it then your position, if you're going to hold 10 to 20 companies, that, that coming into angel investing, one should anticipate that they're going to put in a minimum of a quarter of a million dollars to maybe a million dollars over that portfolio of 10 to 20 companies in order to actually be able to play the game 
with the odds that you're saying, you, you know, and, and the reason I ask that question is because I see people dabbling in, in angel investing going, well, you know, I'm thinking about putting $10,000 in portfolio. And you wonder like, should they be doing this or should they walk into it first saying, I am going to invest 250,000 to a million dollars at, in a portion of my overarching portfolio that is angel investing. It just does it sort of a, yeah. I mean, I, I love that question. Um, it's a really good question. Uh, you know, I tend to say, I think that what makes sense for a person who's interested in angel investing, you know, sort of the, what I would say is like a, a really sort of good sane approach would be, you know, hey, I'm going to invest, you know, a hundred grand a year, um, you know, for the next four or five years to build up my portfolio, right? So that's, you're adding four companies a year over the course of five years, that gets you to your 20. Um, you know, this whole, you know, it, it was, it was really reflected even in the way you said it, which is that, you know, a lot of angel groups have this sense of like, oh, and we need to like reserve some for follow on so that we can help the companies you know, realistically, the way that the ecosystem works, um, and we'll get into some slides that describe it a little bit better, is that, you know, a company does a two hundred and fifty to $500,000 friends and family raise, right? So the friends and family raise will come, you know, some from their own money, some from, you know, people who are actually family, um, some from high net worth individuals that they like know and have a relationship with. Um, and then, you know, if they deploy that money intelligently, there'll be sort of a million dollar, you know, pre-seed round, right? Is what sort of people would probably call that now. That million dollar pre-seed round is really where, you know, angels would come in and angel groups should come in um, where there's been a significant amount of de-risking that it makes sense. And you could put your 25,000 in there. But, you know, this whole idea that like, you know, reserve some more money for their follow-on rounds is that realistically, like once they've done that million, if the company is going on a good path, they'll be doing, you know, a $3 million seed round, right? Or they'll be getting to a series A. Other, other types of firms are going to take over at that point. Like you'll probably have a, a, an opportunity to put more money in. Um, but where I see people getting into trouble is, you know, they fund these startups a little too early and then the startups just run out of money and then they come back to angels like, oh, do a bridge round, give me more, you know, and that's where people end up kind of losing a lot. So, you know, I think you, ha you have to be a little bit dispassionate um, that, you know, you, you sort of, you took a flyer and, you know, this happened and you have to analyze sort of each opportunity individually. Um, but that, you know, when you come in and you're fulfilling that role that an angel investor should fulfill, you know, it is, it should not really totally be your obligation to, you know, continue capital, capitalizing the company um, as they grow and become more successful. So, you know, it's great if a company is doing really well, like we've seen, you know, when we see companies where we're like, okay, you know, we were in their seed round and the pre-money was five, 
right? And then they knew they were getting a Series A done with this fund. They did, you know, a, another small bridge with a $7 million. Oh, maybe people want to add to their position because they know, you know, it's going up. Now the company is doing a Series A and the valuation is 35. You know, do you want to put more in to exercise your pro rata alongside of a venture fund? You know, probably yes. Um, so, you know, you will have opportunities to kind of re-up and add more. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the strategy should really be that, you know, hopefully over the next five or six years, I can kind of get to my 20 company portfolio target. But to very much realize that, you know, it does not need to happen overnight. It's going to take you a while to select those companies. And if you're adding, you know, four really great investments per year, that is fine. You're on the path to get there. I'm curious when you, um, when you talk about building a portfolio, um, for an individual investor, would you advise um, sticking to a set of companies that in an industry or a sector that they understand and can potentially even, you know, get engaged and assist the company? Or would you say diversify into sectors that they may not know, but that an angel group, you know, might enable them to access because other people are experts? So yeah. how, how diverse would you make the portfolio? Okay. I mean, that's a great question. So, um, I, you know, I'm not big on sector focus. Um, and so we'll look at, you know, what makes a company investable. I think the things that make a company investable are kind of outside of the sector. So I would, you know, kind of advise people to, um, it's fine to, to have a, a more diversified approach and probably beneficial. Um, because, you know, it'd be like, oh, what if somebody decided, like, I only want to do things that are crypto, or I only want to do things that are cannabis, you know, now you're bringing in sort of a more concentrated risk factor if something happens within those industries. Um, so I think that, you know, it's probably smart to uh, diversify a little bit. I do think it's important to invest in things that you can understand. Um, but I will say from experience, um, I have noticed that, you know, sometimes people who have too much expertise in a certain industry um, can actually make not great investment decisions on things that are in their own industry um, because they know the industry so well. They tend to be, um, you know, overly critical of the companies that come through in that space. Um, so, you know, just based on what I've seen over my 13 years doing it, I would say that, you know, when people are presented with something that's actually in a, in a space that they have a lot of domain expertise, they tend to pass on things that end up being successful because they just knew too much about it. Um, so I don't think it's actually helpful to you to, you know, even do something in your space. Now, if we're talking about things that are like, you know, deep technology, life sciences heavy, biotech heavy, you know, most people do not look at those sectors because, you know, there is, it's very hard for them to actually validate um, the underlying product. So, you know, for things that are sort of like wet medical, you know, where it's not something where you can say, okay, I could sort of understand why somebody would need this, you know, or you don't know if the product actually works. Um, most people just stay out of those realms completely. 
Um, but as far as, you know, being able to sort of understand, you know, enterprise technology, consumer technology, you know, what you're going to see a large number of opportunities in, um, you know, I think it's fine to, to go in a variety of sectors. You know, the, the number one sort of thing that we're betting on in this stage is not so much, you know, the sector but it's really that founder um, and the opportunity. So we want to keep our eyes open uh, for a, a wide, wide variety of those. So let's just talk a little bit about what actually makes a company investable. So what are some of the things that we're looking for? So, you know, whether you're an investor or a founder looking to raise money, you know, these are really important considerations and, you know, they're almost in order of what actually drives value and investment. Um, so, you know, we have to sort of really separate the concept and this is so important as an investor, you know, this is like, probably my number one takeaway that I've learned, um, you know, investing in hundreds of companies and having the experience that I have is that, you know, an investment is an investment. It's not about a product or an idea, right? So we have to sort of like separate all of those things completely. And you'll notice as I'm talking, I almost never talk about, you know, what the idea is or what the product is, right? We look to other things that are much better indicators of whether or not a company is investable. So, you know, the number one thing, and I would say the, the strongest driver of value is the management team, right? So it is, you know, absolutely the most valuable thing in a company, you know, founders that are the right founders that are able to bring a team around them and really we're investing in the people. So, you know, at this stage, there's usually not a lot of there there. So you're really just, you know, not only counting on them to be able to build a company, which is extraordinarily hard, um, but also to be able to um, bring in people around them that are trustworthy and hardworking and can build something. And that's really the, the, absolute hardest challenge in building a company. So, you know, if you see, you know, this is sort of why they say like solo founders almost never get funded, you know, and it's not because any, anybody has something against that founder, um, but it's just that, you know, the number one um, most valuable trait in uh, somebody who's starting a company is the ability to sort of sell other people on their vision and bring them around them. So you sort of, you know, that's going to be a huge driver of value. Um, and then next, of course, is the size of the addressable market. So, you know, you guys might know sort of the minimum, you know, total addressable market that you really need a company to be going after is at least a billion dollars. And we'll sort of get into, you know, why that's a high bar. Um, and then thirdly is product market fit, right? So we'll talk about what product market fit is, but, you know, I always say like, you know, I don't care if you're, you know, selling bags of dog doo-doo, like as long as there's a customer for them and they're willing to pay for it, it really doesn't matter what your product is as long as there's a market that really wants it and they're able to pay for it. Um, you know, next is sort of really understanding the company's customer acquisition channels and the scalability of those channels. Um, you know, why or where they have a competitive advantage, um, whether that's intellectual property or some other competitive advantage. Um, you know, this is really important. Um, I get a lot of people who, you know, sort of get very obsessed with this idea of like patents, patent, patents. Well, you know, 
Patents are okay, but 99% of the time, you know, we want to see a company that has a competitive advantage for reasons outside of the fact that they have some patented technology. And that's simply because patents are a pain to get and they're also a pain to enforce. Um, and, you know, and a lot of times they don't even protect you that much. So, you know, it's much better that the company has some sort of competitive advantage or just general intellectual property um, that can be protected for other reasons, right? So there are some barriers to entry um, or at least that they have, you know, some sort of a very solid first mover advantage. And you would see that with a company like Uber, you know, had a very strong first mover advantage in the beginning as it took them quite a long time to even sort of build up the ecosystem before other competitors could come in. Um, and then lastly, we're looking for um, evidence of traction um, as well as tremendous growth potential. Um, and of course, exit opportunities. So whether or not, um, you know, a company is creating value, you know, building a great product, has traction, you know, its value is really going to largely be driven by, okay, well, what are the exit opportunities, right? Are there some really large um, you know, potential acquirers with a lot of cash that are going to pay a premium for this. A great example of that is a company like Honey, right? So Honey, uh, awesome company, you know, they sort of do the uh, Chrome extension, browser extension that helps aggregate all of your discount codes and coupon coupons. You know, they only raised $40 million, I think, in total. Um, and they sold to PayPal for $4 billion. Right. So, you know, even though it was a great company independently, the fact that there was sort of this big, you know, potential acquirer that has a lot of, you know, cash and value to bring to the table provided for a fantastic exit opportunity for the original investors. And, you know, FYI, they did not have an easy time raising capital. Like I'm actually uh, good friends with one of their, the, the seed funds that was one of their first investors, like completely sort of relatively unknown fund in Detroit. So it wasn't like, you know, everyone in Silicon Valley was, you know, fighting over this deal, right? It took them a few years to actually raise money. Um, but, you know, that's a perfect example of the way a company should operate. They should be able to, you know, get to some sort of break even or whatever on hopefully less than $50 million in capital and then be able to provide, you know, a big exit. I mean, 4 billion is amazing, but even if it was 1 billion, you know, that would have been really, really great. So that's kind of like what we're looking for. All of those elements um, make a company investable. And as you can see, you know, none of these elements necessarily um, have to do with like a specific sector or a specific product. Um, so as far as like the management team, which is the first thing that we look for, you know, number one, experienced or serial founders, um, that adds value. Is it necessary? Not always, right? So, you know, I've had companies in my portfolio that have had a serial founder who had, you know, no previous big exits, but he had experience, you know, grew his company to a billion dollar valuation and that's wonderful. But I've also, you know, we've also had companies we invested in where the founder was like dropping out of college in 19, still, you know, grew his company to, you know, several times uh, what we invested. So, um, you know, it, this is just a point of value. It's not a necessity, but we're just talking about kind of like what improves value versus detracts from it. 
So, you know, having several co-founders versus a solo founder drives value within the company. Um, having a team in place, that means, you know, a CEO, a COO, and either a CTO or CMO, depending on the type of business, um, you know, help to add value to the potential investment. And then, you know, to really be able to answer the question, like, why this team, right, relevant expertise, um, you know, you'll very often see people kind of starting businesses that, you know, they have no particular expertise in. They're just like, oh, I thought this would be a good idea. You know, it can work, um, but actually knowing like why these people strategically um, are bringing value to the table um, is really critical and an important part of the diligence process. And then, of course, whatever sweat equity they've put into the company so far, right? So like what have they been able to build so far? you know, what value have they created? All of these components um, go to actually drive value within uh, the current company. Um, and then as far as addressable market, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you really have got to look at companies that have at least a billion dollars or more total addressable market. Um, and the reason for that is that it will really largely dictate how large the company can grow. So in order to have a viable exit opportunity through like M&A, um, you really need to get to at least 100 million or more in revenue, right? So for you to get to 100 million or more in revenue, that means even if your market opportunity was 10 billion, you have to capture 10% of the market, um, which is no small feat, right? So not only, you know, do you need to get to at least 100 or million or more generally to be viable, for exit, but then whoever's acquiring you is acquiring you because they feel that there's more growth potential. So, you know, they're usually acquiring the company so that they can then, you know, sort of take the inner workings and cause growth within their business. So, you know, you've got to be able to get to scale and then you've got to have extra room for growth. Um, and that's why people love markets that have a growing addressable market. And that's why like cannabis has been so hot. That's why video is so hot right now. That's why, you know, meditation has been really hot in the last couple of years. Internet of things, you know, all of these are sectors that, um, you know, are already fairly large, but are expected to grow considerably over the next few years. So it's kind of this like rising boat, rising tide lifts all boats theory. So Karen has a great question. Do you have some insights as to why women-led companies get less funds than male companies? Um, yeah, you know, so I spend a lot of time talking on this because it's a, you know, it's a relevant question. I'd say it's pretty simple. So, you know, we live in a society that has, you know, just inherent biases towards the ability of, you know, uh, women to accomplish certain things. Um, you know, why is it hard for women positions of power of everything, right? So, you know, there's that number one, that's sort of an inherent disadvantage. And then number two, um, you know, the venture capital space is very insular. Um, basically, there's no like career path for it, right? So the only way that you become a venture capitalist is because some very rich people thought that they should give you money to manage, right? It's not like you work your way up, you know, from analysts and now all of a sudden you're the partner. No, like you basically have to go out and raise the money yourself. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, women have always been, I think, a little bit more conscious cautious in investing. Like a lot of the women that I know, you know, have known over the years that, you know, are ultra high net worth individuals. Um, they will be 
totally fine, you know, donating millions of dollars to charity, but the idea that they would give it to like a female emerging fund manager, you know, they're too cautious for that, right? Whereas, you know, men just don't view things the same way. Um, and so for that reason, we've seen an industry in which, you know, I think less than 10% of investment managers are female or people of color. So it's largely dominated by white men. And, you know, it's very natural that, you know, if I'm a white male, you know, investment manager, and I sort of look at things through a certain lens, um, when I'm being pitched, you know, I'm going to view somebody who's more similar to me as being more competent than probably somebody who's different, right? So, that's the main reason why I think it's been that way. And we're working really hard, you know, to shift that thinking um, and to get more sort of uh, females and people of color in investment manager roles, um, you know, to help kind of get to the root of the problem there, right? And to get more of those companies funded. But it's a very good question. Um, there's a really great research piece written by uh, Donna, which is D-A-N-A, Kanze, K-A-N-Z-E. Uh, she is um, a Columbia Business School or PhD at Columbia. And she did an entire research project on, you know, how were female founders treated differently and so the key takeaway was that when a woman was pitching a business, the main focus was on what could go wrong with the business. Whereas when a man was pitching a business, the main focus was on what the big picture potential of the business was. Um, and that led to, you know, people feeling um, that, the, the female-led business was a lot riskier um, and that the male-led business had a lot more upside potential. So I hope that that answers the question in a nutshell. I know it's a complex and thorny topic. Thank you for bringing it up, Karen. Um, so we have a few more minutes and I just want to dive into, you know, what I think is like the most crucial thing to look at in investing and that is product market fit. Um, so we want to talk about why it's so important and why it is so misunderstood. Um, so when people talk about product market fit, um, it's really the holy grail of what you're looking for in an investment. And it's so hard to achieve because really, you know, if you've ever gotten one of these surveys that says, you know, how, how would you feel if you could no longer use product X, right? It says very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed, or I don't use it anymore. Um, the reason you're getting it is because they're trying to assess uh, their level of product market fit. And so as you can hear, see here with um, some of the results that are really successful, uh, SaaS company like Slack has gotten, you know, they basically had 90% um, of their uh users feel pretty disappointed, right? So they had over 50% saying that they were very disappointed and 40% saying somewhat disappointed. And so to actually have customers that are at this level, you know, where they would feel very disappointed or some pain if they can no longer have access to your product um, is incredibly difficult to achieve, um, but also puts you in a position of extreme value within the market. So rather than, you know, evaluating the product on, you know, what do we think of the product? Would we like it? Do we want to use it? Really this kind of data that a startup gets back from customers around product market fit, 
around engagement, around a low level of churn, um, are some of the best indicators to uh, creating value within a company and to make a company actually investable. So, you know, product market fit is basically validation that the customers place monetary value on the product. Um, it establishes a possibility for monetization. Um, and really, if they don't have it, you get into that very bad position where the company that you've invested in will start investing in customer acquisition um, for people who don't really care that much about their product and they churn out, which essentially you know, destroys all the value and uses up the money that you've given them. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.